0: What up, peeps? Welcome to Unscripted and Unprepared brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit down with Tom Foreman, CEO of Critical Content Studios. Was really excited to get Tom on the show. I have been chasing him for some time now. If you had to create the Mount Rushmore of all-time great pitchmen in our business, Tom Foreman is undoubtedly one of them. And we went through all the greatest hits, Extreme Makeover, Home Edition, which Tom created, Kid Nation, and all of the backlash that surrounded that show at the time, Gigolos on Showtime, Guys Grocery Games on Food Network, Catfish, and many others. We also talked about how Tom witnessed one of the greatest Hollywood stories of all time play out when he was over at Relativity and before he departed after Relativity went bankrupt the first time. We now talk about what Critical Content Studios is now after acquiring T-Group and Jenny Daly. It was a lot of fun, a lot of great inside stories. Here's my sit down with Tom Foreman. I hope you enjoy it. So I'm here in beautiful Burbank, California, the corporate home of such legends as Walt Disney, Johnny Carson, Fred Savage on The Wonder Years. Sure. I don't know if you're aware of this, that the home is just around the corner.
1: The, no, the, we should immediately go rebuild that.
0: The Wonder Years house right. is
1: right there. I'm certain that's been pitched.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. you know that's At probably, this
1: moment, that is, someone has that in a deal.
0: That's the next one, right? There's probably like five houses left after the Brady Bunch thing.
1: Dude, I'm, I'm pitching three or four of them right now.
0: Oh, can you can you give me a sense of what might be on the list?
1: Every every network has asked us, you know, sort of what's our Brady, which is an interesting thought exercise, right? To go yeah. down and say like, what's the piece of nostalgia IP that you could physically rebuild for Discovery Channel? Um, they are considering our proposal for to,
0: actual Discovery for di- Discovery di- okay, Discovery.
1: Okay. We went at, the Orca, the shark hunting boat from Jaws,
0: oh, wow. sat
1: on a beach in Menemsha, Martha's Vineyard for years. Um, they believe the ribs of it are still under the sand, so we could go dig for those. Wow. People own pieces because it was scavenged by the locals. That's a great Shark uh, Week special. Right? This is what I said. So we've bought, <laughs> we've bought what remains of the orca. We've got a boat builder in place to do it. And so, like, that was discovery. We've thought about it for, for food, for BET, for this. We're out pitching Brady knockoffs because that's a so. I can place. Okay,
0: so already I can see this glint in your eye. Yeah. You, you are a TV nerd, aren't you? Yeah, for sure. I can sense it already. The, the way, the passion that you're talking about, the orca—you, you must have been a pop culture nerd from early on. Sure. I, look, I, I,
1: I love our genre, right? And I feel like we're constantly asked to apologize for being, at at best, nonfiction television producers, and at worst, reality TV guys. <laughs> like I've never felt that way. I think the stuff is super entertaining. I consume a lot of it. Um, I love these shows.
0: Okay, so this is this is great because. I've been told by many, many people for years that Tom Foreman is one of the greatest pitchers in the history of our business, okay? And that includes my own wife. and, <laughs> and Tom, funny. And, and, Tom, it's the most jealous I've ever been as a husband. Right. I, my you, wife would disagree, but sure. You, you can tell me another man is, is handsome, whatever, but when she starts talking about another that man's pitching, pitching abilities, ability. that's right. it really got me in the gut. And I've been told this for years, and being in a room with you now for five minutes because we've never really spent any time together – I'm already sensing why you just, you have this joy about you when you talk about our business. That's,
1: (laughs) that's nice of you to say. I'm not sure I feel that way every day. (laughs) Um, look, I guess I've always just thought two things, right? One, if I'm asking a network to trust me to make an entertaining piece of content, I ought to be able to make the pitch entertaining. You ought to be able to go in and spin a story and keep people laughing and, and deliver it with a linear narrative that has a beginning, middle, and end that ties to some sort of pop culture touchstone that they will immediately recognize, you know that the act of pitching is not that different from the act of ultimately making the show, and so you should you should put some time and effort into it. Um, I also just like selling. Yeah, I like the give and take of it. It it feels a, I'm not an athlete, but like this is my version of a sporting event. Um, I I enjoy trying to get it closed
0: how how much has the actual pitching philosophy changed over the years since you first started to now have you had to find some new tricks have you had to change how you how you walk into the room and what I, you bring? I don't
1: know that it's tricks look it's it's super helpful that i was a field producer and a showrunner before trying to run a company and sell shows I don't know how you could do the latter if you if you weren't skilled at the former. And so your ability to not just like pitch a log line and a celebrity attachment, but to really intuitively think about this thing in terms of act structure and and arcing narrative, I think that's important. Mm. I guess to actually answer your question, look, the thing that has changed is just that the the barrier to entry is now sky high mm. in terms of materials. Helpfully, you know, tech has made that a little less arduous and certainly a little less expensive. But I I do wonder what it would be like right now to be sort of a, a real independent producer, a real solo practitioner going to networks who just expected you to have Really carefully crafted sizzle reels, decks filled with graphics on cardstock. You know, the cost of pitching a show is prohibitive, and Mm. I I think that makes it hard for for upstarts.
0: That's the biggest difference you've seen from the beginning, right, is the actual materials now.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, look, I've I've been doing this for – I remember the good old days when we used to go to a real screen market and, like, you know, you'd find a discovery exec and you'd bullshit. Yeah, What about – you know, hot air balloons. And everybody goes, go, sounds good, let's take 12. I mean, it was just so much easier. All
0: right, so where did you start out? Because I know I know a lot about your producing career, just, from, like, following the credits and all that, but I don't know anything that came before that. Got it. So, look,
1: I, I... Everybody always talks about how they sort of found their way to television production and the 101 things they did before they knew they wanted to do this. Like, I'm not that guy. Yeah. I grew up wanting to do this. This is all I ever wanted to do. I was really tactical about it uh i joke to my parents that you know it's all just payback for not having a tv set when we were children uh they really they hated television so of course i loved it Um,
0: where did you consume it if it wasn't in the home
1: i had a babysitter that would let me there we had a small television we just weren't allowed to use it it was for my parents only um I had a babysitter, Phyllis McInerney, who allowed us to watch The Brady Bunch before my mother came home. She would watch out the window and yell to us when she saw my mom's Volvo in the driveway. Wow. Um, I wanted to make TV for as long as I could remember. I I grew up in Massachusetts, so I, I assumed that would entail getting to New York, though I'm not sure why I thought that. So I limited my college search to schools in Manhattan, which was limiting. Uh, I ended up at Columbia and o- almost immediately started as a production assistant down at Fox, working on a terrible tabloid show called A Current Affair. Oh, of course. Uh, and sort of quickly went from PA to AP to field producer. They you – know, I was, hu- I was hungry, willing to haul myself onto airplanes. My willingness to just do the work did not go unrecognized. My
0: you were juni- f- Your field producer yeah, still yeah. in college.
1: Yeah, so I, I took every class that was offered on a Tuesday and then – Went out and field produced tabloid television six days a week. Wow.
0: What a great training ground.
1: the best. You you yeah. cut a piece every day of your life and you cut tape to tape, right? right. So it,
0: it was a weekly show or daily. was it daily? It was daily. a daily
1: strip. So you were really um, you
0: just had to get it done.
1: You had to get it done yeah. and you had to you had to edit with intent. You had to learn how to do right. everything. I mean, I laugh. Like most of my staff here doesn't yeah. know what it means to to fret about going down a generation, you know, going back and making a change was almost impossible. So you really thought about the story. These were dumb stories, but still, you thought about the story you were going out to tell, how it would open, what sort of coverage you would need, what that intro VO would be. You shot super intentionally, mm. which I think is still incredibly applicable to what we do today. I did two years at a current affair. I then got poached away by their big competitor, Inside Edition, yep. which was great. you know Matt Singerman?
0: Who's I do know, it yeah, Matt Singerman. Who's he been, he's been like a consultant for NFL Network. And, right.
1: Yeah. So Matt, Matt Singerman was the other like kid producer, though as I say that, I should point out he was a few years older <laughs> than I was. I was 18, 19. Matt was the guy I aspired to be. He jumped ship from A Current Affair to Inside Edition, and if I understand correctly, at some point they were like, you're good. Who's the other kid we mm. could steal from A Current Affair? And to this day, I owe Matt Singerman because he gave him my name. Uh, And I got hired as a producer at Inside Edition. Well, at Inside Edition, an American journal producing pieces for Nancy Glass, Mm -hmm. um, who remains a friend to this day and a competitor now.
0: Had her on the show.
1: Yeah, the best. Nancy's the best. Um, Ran around there for a couple of years, but always knew, you know, I wanted to be a journalist. Like I really – I had a tremendous amount of respect – for the evening news broadcasts for what was then sort of the fledgling cable news industry. I was learning the business in tabloid, but like I didn't care about those stories Mm. and I was honest with myself. And, and by the way, like those shows get the joke. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's a thing we'd need to cut around or pretend not to be true. Um, I wanted to end up at a, at a news network. Somewhere in the middle of my my fourth year in tabloid, my senior year of college, uh, CBS got it in their head to launch a syndicated competitor to the Oprah Winfrey show. So you know the end of the story even at the <laughs> beginning. It did not work. Um, but it was going to be a live daily hour, sort of a, a dateline in daytime. Okay. Um, Eric Sorensen was hired to executive produce it. He was coming off the evening news. He hired mostly very serious CBS journalists. And I think just wanted a few syndication scumbags that he could shove in a back room who, to your point, like knew how to get on a show every day come hell or high water. Right. Uh, And I went and applied for that job, and he hired me. And so I was a field producer on day and date. That was my entree into CBS News with me Mm. surrounded by exactly the journalists I wanted to be. Mm. And I just stuck around when that show got canceled, and I went to Forty Eight Hours and just stayed there. Yeah, because I you, loved Forty Eight.
0: Because if you look on your IMDb, Forty Eight Hours I think is the earliest credit for you. That could be actually. Yeah, that's listed, and you're you're in like your early twenties at this point, mid twenties.
1: I twenty two. Yeah, early, right. early. So you're right. fresh
0: out of college. You're, that's a yeah. lot you you did in college. A lot of that was bouncing around in college. A lot of the jobs and
1: Inside Edition were college jobs, yeah. full time college yeah. jobs. And then CBS at Day and Date, and the cable channel. They, they, I worked on a short-lived right. Brian Gumble News Magazine there. You know, I did pieces for the evening news. Big <laughs> resume news path.
0: by twenty-two.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just this is uh, like I said, this yeah. is what I wanted to do, so I just did it.
0: How many years were you at Forty Eight Hours?
1: Uh, I was there from ninety-six to two thousand and one. Yeah. So five five years at forty-eight. Um, so, it, you know, the, the last year of which was almost entirely 9-11 for me because right. it was for everybody in New York. You want yeah. to talk about small worlds. Uh, we got an incoming phone call Two French brothers, uh, NYU film school.
0: Grad. I know this story.
1: Yeah. You ben, heard this from the Ben cause, side. Because Ben Silverman That's was right. involved in this. Yes. So Jules and Gideon Naudet right. stumble out of Tower One, um, having been smart enough to not shut off their camcorders. And recorded this extraordinary historic footage. They called their dad, who was the film editor of French Vogue, mm. and said, one, we're alive, dad, and we love you. And, and what do you think we should do with this footage? He called Graydon Carter, because Condé Nast, um, who called Ben, who called Les Moonves, who called Susan Zarinsky, who called me susan zarinsky forty eight hours yeah. sort of sort of effectively c b s at that time in a in a round of budget cuts had shut down its special events unit okay and so forty eight did that wow you know we were we were smart producers who liked telling stories and we're were're the single subject documentary unit right because mm-hmm. that show it has changed since, but when I was there you know was not it was a little crime focus but it was not all crime all the time it was any good story told for one full hour um, that was the the show that seemed most applicable to this footage
0: and that was narrated by Robert De Niro right it
1: was and who... so i so so i stepped out of the CBS news 15,000 person infrastructure opened a little office across the street and was the senior producer and writer of this thing we ultimately called 911 and somewhere in the middle of that process, I, I vividly remember saying to myself, oh, I'm sort of setting my own schedule and making my own thing. I've got this very small staff of incredibly talented people working for me. I'm answering really at this point to the West Coast. Les was very hands-on, um, which was terrific. Like we, we loved knowing we had that kind of support, and I just thought I, I, I guess this is what independent production feels <laughs> like, and I think I like it. And so I went to Andrew Hayward, president of CBS News at the time, and just said, I don't think I'm coming back. Like, I'm going to finish this movie because I love this movie. Um, but but after that, I, I'm, I'm probably going to move to L.A. and just seek <laughs> my fortune and see what else is out there because this process is really interesting to me, and I think I could be good at it. Um, he reminded me, as everyone has at every step of my career, what a horrible mistake I was making. <laughs> um, and then I called – I called my agent, I was then with, with NS Beanstalk, they're okay, now sure. UTA, but that little news agency yep. and said, you know, look, I used to get incoming phone calls asking whether I would consider running a reality show. It was the super early days of this genre, and I don't think anybody knew what a yeah, like I mean, where a reality TV EP came from.
0: Yeah, and at that point it's it's really it's just starting to boom. It's like just starting. 2002, it's, it's, it's like post-idol. So it's
1: Survivor's just premiered. Yep. Um, Big Brother's been announced but has not premiered. I think
0: Biggest Loser rolls right. out around 2003, around the same time yep. as Extreme Makeover. Every, Home
1: everybody's running around. I mean, and this is, yeah. this is 2001 one two. Right. Networks are ordering shows from companies like Endemol and Fremantle, these European imports that had opened U.S. Right. offices. And then wondering how the hell you actually make them. Right. You know, those were the years that a bunch of Dutch and Belgian like landed over I, here to run them and 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 I think look, think back to season one of Big Brother when everybody went, right. Oh, like they can't just fly over and make the show. Right. We're in America and we have American taste and pacing and and you know, we demand different levels of production value.
0: But I never thought about that at that time, nobody knew where to find a nobody, reality showrunner. That's exactly right. What pool and do so, you pull them from?
1: So Boona Murray vets. Yep. Right, you could hire people yep. who had who had worked on Real World, and they were they were good, and all of those people have gone on to have huge careers. Um, you could you could look in syndication. You know, people were people were coming off of Entertainment Tonight and Access Hollywood and shows like Hard Copy, you know, and and trying to transition into this genre. And I think you know there were people out there who thought this kid who's doing these forty eight hours documentaries, right. may, maybe he could do it. Uh, and David Goldberg, who was running Endemol USA was putting producers in overall deals. And I think smartly, you know, trying to, trying to staff a suite of executive producers and show creators, each of whom had a slightly different POV. You know, so he had Janelle Fiorito, who is better than anyone I've ever met at talk shows. Mm-hmm. He had Gunnar Wedderberg doing game shows. Mm-hmm. And in there somewhere, I think he wanted a you know documentary and doc follow guy, mm. and he met me and thought I might be that person, so he put me in a, a you know a deal that turned out to be great for both of us. Um, I landed in that office and almost almost immediately pitched Extreme Makeover Home. Well, I sold a pilot to MTV, a pilot to NBC in the first couple of months of that overall. I mean, you want to talk about a different time to sure. sell shows? That yeah. wouldn't happen now. Um, and then pitched what, what became Extreme Makeover Home Edition to Andrea Wong and then went on the road and
0: ran that show. Right, so, walk, so walk me through this. As, as the creator of Extreme Makeover Home Edition, what did you walk into the room with, with Andrea?
1: Yeah. So Mark Itkin, um, then of the William Morris Agency, yeah. WMA. The great Mark Itkin. The great Mark Itkin. Yeah. Um, best agent there will ever be.
0: Had him on the show. Uh, I, just like the greatest guy ever. Right. Yeah. Ever. Amazing.
1: Uh, sits on my board. I am, oh, yeah? I'm a huge Mark Itkin oh, I didn't fan. know that. Yeah. And, okay. I know I, and I own a ton. Um, Mark relayed to that team of executive producers at Endemol that ABC wanted to do something in the home renovation space. The genre was blowing up on cable, um, mostly trading spaces right you know and the question was what would that look like in broadcast, which is an interesting an interesting exercise, and in retrospect i I now know because Andrea was kind enough to tell me sort of where almost everybody went with that assignment. Mm. It was 2002. Uh, The genre was about vote-offs and backstabbing and competition. And I think dozens of producers went over to ABC and said – my family will renovate against your family. One of us will win a house i 'm going to fill a house with fourteen people they 'll renovate against each other and vote people out of the house. You know they were pretty straight down the middle competition elimination shows um, Had I been out here longer you know and had I watched more of these shows frankly that's probably what I would have pitched too. Mm. I was just coming from somewhere really different um, you know i had spent I had spent the last six years at c b s News I had wow. been at, at Ground Zero. I had covered Columbine. I had run the little Bureau for Inside Edition at Oklahoma City. You had seen people on their worst day, and at all of those shows, even the tabloids, you know you had aspired to sort of you know, journalistic standards that dictated you were not going to get involved in their lives you know you you were going to relay their story honestly um you were going to be kind and gracious as you did it and and maybe you could get away with grabbing a dinner check after after they bared their soul to you mm-hmm. but then you were going to leave and that was really that was part of the job you know you didn't stay and help you were a journalist you reported and you and you left um and i didn't i didn't love that feeling and so i remember going in and saying to andrea i think you know i think there's a show that starts with exactly the kind of families i've been profiling for the news magazines you know people who've really been through something shitty will find them on their worst day and will use this renovation to leave them on their best we will we will solve their problem by fixing their house um and she ordered a non airing proof of concept pilot we started to cast for now, a was vent- it just against oh, yeah, was it
0: just a, a one sheet was it a was it just a ver- verbal pitch and here's what no I'm I mean thinking. there's
1: there's there's like a four or five page treatment somewhere okay. on a you know I, I you
0: gotta frame that thing
1: probably like it's printed on a dot matrix printer <laughs> I didn't know how to write a treatment right but it's you know it's it's passionate and it's closer to the show we ended up making yeah. than you'd have any reason to expect given right. what we go through in development right you know it it really talked about stories I had scene and experiences right. I had had and the degree to which a new house that that really specifically answered some of their problems right there and right. I remember using those examples but it's, also
0: uh, also just with ABC again you, you look back the perfect home for that show I mean the Disney magic right that kind of was channeled through that show it seemed like it was the perfect concept at the perfect time with the perfect network,
1: yeah, I mean in retrospect in retrospect you know yeah. at the at the time it we were certainly zigging where the genre yes.
0: zag yes,
1: you know the these shows were getting louder and bigger and meaner and weirder. Darnell was doing what Darnell was doing over yeah. at fox mm-hmm. and and that was setting the bar really high, mm-hmm. just in terms of the you know the on camera drama and batshit craziness that reality TV was, was delivering, you know, again, it was the early days of survivor. The mole, and I just, yeah. Right? I mean, people were eating rats. Like yeah. it was crazy. Yeah. yeah. And I was yeah. saying nice families who need a helping hand. And I think it sounded nuts. Um, and it, certainly as we set out to cast this show and we began to deliver Self shot tapes of, of those applicant families, yep. I, I think ABC and Endemol thought I'd completely lost my mind. I mean, it was just, it was really sad. And that wasn't a thing you had seen on TV before. Oh, yeah. And I think we, we all questioned myself too, like whether anybody would watch this. Like, this is really sad. Mm-hmm. Do I want to feel that way? Mm-hmm. Like, would I, cho- would I
0: choose to cry in a reality show? But the sad is just the setup. Right. Well, look, that's what I can say to show everybody. The, yeah. The meat of the show was the build.
1: Right. We won't leave them like this. Right. right. The middle of the show, those process acts on yeah. every home renovation. show since the dawn of time right. are impossibly hard because yeah. hammers are going to get hammered and nails are going to get nailed. And like we do a lot of that to this day. Right. And I, I do. I say to every showrunner who works for us, you know, if you screw this up. You are literally watching paint dry. Like this is there's nothing inherently interesting about nope. about property TV. No. Nope. On home edition, we just at least when I ran it, you know, we just endeavored to make those middle acts a variety show. Right. You know, it was like, what musical act can we book? You know, will Disney send over the seven dwarves in costume to demo the house mm-hmm. with their pickaxes? The the viewers knew. Right. Like you right. you the price you had to pay. Was to watch the first three and a half well, acts, well, this, the, so that you would get to moving that
0: bus. Exactly, okay, right. you just you just went there because I had to ask. Yeah, the move, the move, the bus. Yeah, was that born out of the original pilot? Was that something you found midway through season one? So it's
1: a good, it's a good story actually. It's amazing to me how much of the stuff we made up during that pilot yeah. became canon and sort of right. iconic. Yeah. Um, at some point, I thought. Look, one, we're endeavoring to renovate a house in a week. We're going to be there 24 hours a day. It feels super weird to have the talent leave and go back home or to hotels or wherever they might go. Let's let's make part of the show mythology they live on set. Mm-hmm. And so we rented the first bus, which was not at all like that fancy coach that would be used in subsequent episodes. It was a rock and roll tour bus with bunks, Mm. and I went to Ty Pennington and the stars of that show. I was like, you're going to sleep here. And they almost mutinied, but I forced them to do it. Um, And in fact, thank God we did because the truth is, like, we didn't know how to renovate a house in seven days. It was really – that first season was terrifying. (laughs) Uh, We would rip down houses and then pray we could put them back up. And, and through a lot of hard work and creativity, you created a construction methodology before you even thought about how you were going to make the show. And we figured it out and kind of wrestled it to the ground. But it was – I've never slept less in my life. Mm. Neither did the talent who were fully building this house with me. Like mm. it was terrifying. Um, but so come to the end of that, that first episode – we were shooting in Santa Clarita, the only town crazy enough to give us a permit to build a house in seven mm. days. Mm. Um, they were hungry for production, so they bent over backwards. It was time to reveal this. I, I stood there with Patrick Higgins, our director,
0: who worked with me on uh, on United States of America. Worked on everything. He's yeah. terrific.
1: Yeah, uh, Lisa Higgins, his wife, was awesome. my you know head of production at Endemol, so maybe my boss. Yeah, like a fraught relationship. These are my friends. Um, <laughs> Patrick and I stood there. And the the grip and electric department showed us the curtain they had made, this big velvet curtain they had rented in this kind of janky frame mm-hmm. that was going to suspend a sort of Broadway-style curtain in front of the house – that if you stood at just the right angle would block it from the family, and then Ty would somehow pull a rope and it would open up like mm-hmm. like it was opening night, and we'd reveal the house. And I just thought, God, that's stupid. Mm. It just feels small and dumb and weird. But we're standing out here and we don't really have any uh, other options except that there is that big forty-four foot bus parked there. And so let's just let's just block the house with that. And if you ever watched the pilot episode of Extreme Makeover: Home Edition, and it and it aired. That was a really good idea, if I do say so myself, though I did not make the next logical leap. In the pilot, we leave the bus parked and force the family to to walk walk around around it. (laughs) So walk around that bus and take a look at your new house. And we did it, and it didn't, like, not work, but it was a lot of blocking and super complicated. And by the – after we got the pickup and now we're back out in the field to actually make the episodes, I remember walking over to Ty and saying, brainstorm – that bus could also move. Like maybe they don't walk around it. Maybe it gets out of the way. And we went, ooh, that would be good. And Ty said, well, how do I cue it? And I said, well, you're just going to yell to the bus driver. And he said, what's the bus driver's name? And I said, mm, I don't even know. Nobody cares. Just call him bus driver. And Ty screamed, bus driver, move that bus. And the bus moved. And I remember thinking, oh, that's good. That, could, <laughs> that works. And that's, so that's, that pops up Tom, you know, that in a- episode 102.
0: But that's a moment. That's sure. a moment where you could have easily – had just, you know, I guess the curtain will work. You know what I mean? Like you could have just settled, like some people do sometimes, and not gone with your gut.
1: The curtain was super bad. bad. I don't know anyone who would have settled for the curtain, (laughs) but yeah, it's nice of you to say. The curtain was super bad. It, uh, yeah, look, it it helped that I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I I was a fan of watching this stuff on TV, but... But having been fired from my first job and then produced a couple of pilots that hadn't gotten picked up out here, I didn't really know how to make a show, right. and we were making it up. I, I just knew what I wanted to see as a viewer, and, and look, I, maybe because I had come out of news so rooted in real-world storytelling, I've always been attracted to, to the actual underlying authenticity. Like, why would you? Why would you sew a curtain when the bus is just sitting here? Right, right. And I think that's that's maybe a good way to look at these things. Like, um, it yeah. cleave as closely to what is actually going on and and what you have sitting in front of you as you possibly can.
0: All right, so there's so much I want to get through. Yes, uh, and you only have so much time. You're a very, very busy man. You're a CEO, extremely powerful. Yeah. Uh, four years <laughs> later, four years later, a show I loved that came with a lot wow. of. That came with a lot of attention. Sure. Kid Nation. Yes. I thought Kid Nation was freaking genius. Thank you. I really did. Me too. Now,
1: uh, <laughs> You, you it, and I are the only ones, but you and
0: I. You know, I, I watched it, premiere night. I remember thinking, this is awesome. I remember right. thinking, if I was a kid watching this show, this would be one of those shows that I would fall in love right. with because it didn't pander. And I always thought the greatest movies I grew up on as a kid, like Goonies and yep. others, it's children placed in adult situations. That's right. Right? And that's what Kid Nation was, but mm-hmm. the reality TV show version of that. It's amazing how a show can go through so many layers of development, uh, production, uh, network notes, all that, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you start getting people on the outside, right, calling right. calling things oh, I out. Was,
1: I was called a child abuser on the front page of the New York Times. Yeah, it's and like I was a young dad at that point. The, in the the room. Swarm not good. The around the show, right.
0: and when you actually watch the show, it's like an innocent, fun show. Well, that was one of the way, Flies, but that making- was sort
1: of the perfect storm, right in. During production, the press said, oh, my God, it's Lord of the Flies right? and, and called for our heads. Because and when they, the thing actually premiered, all anybody wrote was like, oh, it's not Lord of the Flies. And right. you went like, no, like we told you. But by then they were – you know they, so they chose were, to think of that as a net negative.
0: So you were getting people coming at you when you were in production and then the show airs months later? Yeah. Right? And then, and then was, was there another outcry once it aired or did it all die down once it actually aired?
1: I mean once it aired, I think people saw that it was really – you know, it, it's what we would now call a social experiment. It was right. a little bit of reality game, that these kids appeared to be having fun, and that whatever it was you thought it was going to be, it sort of wasn't that. Was the, the outcry died down. The ratings never ticked
0: up. Right. Sad. What was the, out- what was the outcry over the – were parents on set or not on set? What was the outcry? So
1: we, we, did, a, we did a crazy thing. Yeah. You know, we convinced 40 parents to give us their children. Like a summer camp. Like a – well, that was the line I used. Yeah, Yeah. like a summer camp. And we took those kids to the New Mexico desert and made that show. Um, So the parents were not there. There were 400 adults. Right. It's it's the biggest footprint. And, you know, I was a big broadcast guy at the time. I I was in an overall deal at CBS. I had been out to the big sets and the big shows. This was bigger. Yeah. In part because it had a cast of 40 – um, and in part because we took our duty of care incredibly seriously. So, like, yes, there was the, you know, the medic and first aid department that every good non-scripted show has. We had pediatricians and child psychologists, and that's before you even got to the, you know, producers. Right. Whose its sole job was Casting to be
0: wranglers, camp like the-
1: counselors yeah. living amongst these kids. You know, there were 40 kids and 400 adults who were never more than four feet from them. You didn't put those adults in the promo and people lost their minds. Like people believed the log line.
0: Would that show get the same outcry now in a Twitter universe or, or even worse? Maybe worse.
1: You think? Maybe worse. I mean we – it was an
0: but, – ug- but, but we're so much more conditioned to reality TV now and we've seen kids in other reality show formats in some way. Yeah. You know, I know what I mean? Like mean, this was still look, early you- days and we had not seen kids use in this way on broadcast right. before. But kids have now been in many reality shows. You know, since right. I, I wonder if it would get yeah. the same. I mean, backlash. look
1: the 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 promos and the episodes too l- leaned into the hardship and the yeah. drama and and they were those kids were they were they were roughing it. You know, no no worse than if they went on an outward bound or a Knowles trip. And again, wilderness experts and camp counselors and and medics and psychologists and pediatricians there. So so we felt good every step of the way. Mm-hmm. But yet, I mean, to watch the thirty second promos that CBS dropped, it looked crazy like I get why people reacted that way
0: are you are you just as a as a producer as a guy I, I don't know your personality no. type because you know we don't know each other well. Are you hard on yourself like when that all went down, did you think, oh my God, I can see my career flashing before my eyes? Or are you one of those types of guys that's just always positive and always thinking oh, no that- so
1: i was I was scared I, and you i were. I think i didn't i in retrospect i I probably should have been able to predict the backlash but i was dumb and didn't like i knew the precautions we had taken i really loved the show we had cast those kids out of gifted and talented programs across the united states in in partnership with educators and ultimately their parents who came out and you know not only met with us for Hours that became days and weeks in California, but who came to set and toured before we even started, who knew me personally by that point. I mean, these these parents were my friends and these kids were my responsibility, and I took it all incredibly seriously. So I knew I felt really good about what we were doing and was was real I was I was floored, though I guess I shouldn't have been yeah. when others saw it differently. Okay. And people were mad. People well, were were angry.
0: Right. So, did you think like, oh, this is going to just screw the, my, all my plans for my career from here on out? I'm going to be branded as the Kid Nation guy. Did, did that ever go through your mind, or were you like, all right, this isn't working out. We'll, we'll get another one. Yeah. Like- I mean, look. He- helpfully, I was at CBS. Yeah.
1: You know, there is not another network that would have hung in there mm. through the press firestorm less. Who was still running the joint at that time was watching Dailies because it was getting so much shitty PR, and knew what it was and what it wasn't, and just liked it.
2: Mm.
1: He liked the show. There you go. Gen Maynard, who was running non-scripted for CBS, really liked the show. Yeah. And so, you know, the guys who could have yanked the rug out from under me were incredibly supportive. Um, and so, I think I knew it would be okay.
0: Because I ask that for a reason. I ask because in 2008 mm-hmm. – in 2008, it's announced that Relativity acquires Tom Foreman Productions. That's, that's where I – that's – Right. So that – well – So it's a year okay. later. I don't
1: – someone may have announced it that way. I just I, – I launched a new JV with Relativity. Okay. I only, I only make the distinction because, like, 2008 was when all of my friends got rich by selling production companies, <laughs> and I, I did not. Well, no, know, this, that's not, I, yeah. not complaining, but I never had the, had the liquidity event of my peers.
0: No, th- yeah, because this was – well, let me get into that because yeah. I, I wrote this quote down. This is from The Hollywood Reporter in 2008 because right. the headline – because the headline is deceiving because the headline says relativity acquires Tom Foreman Productions. Hmm. Uh, and then it says the eight-member staff will uh, form Relativity Real. Here's the quote. It allows relativity to purchase the collective brain trust of Tom Foreman Productions without purchasing the actual company. That's what it yeah. said in the well, article.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is exactly what they did. they <laughs> failed to purchase the actual company.
0: But it um, said, but it, and I won't get into numbers. But it said you had a pretty good a pretty good investment behind you per year for that department, and this essentially yeah. becomes. The TV department for relativity. That's right.
1: So it, we, that's exactly what it was. So I had – It was like
0: a three-year commitment at that yeah, time.
1: Yeah, I had, I had done four or five years in the, in the overall at Endemol. I had done a similar deal with CBS. Right. Um, believing – because that's where CBS was for a minute – that they wanted to build a nonfiction division that would sell to the larger community. Right. That, like, though based at CBS, it would be a studio relationship, right. and I could go make cable shows and, and go sell to competing broadcast networks. Yeah. Like, that was the deal. As it turns out, again, stuff I probably should have known, those guys are just too competitive. Well, well, you know, there's no coming coming back and telling your bosses at CBS that you've set up a project at Fox is not actually good news for them, regardless of the revenue that may flow back. Mm. And so the stuff I did outside of CBS, Showtime, CW – died and like i'm i'm a prolific idea generator if nothing else um and cable was blowing up and i wanted to make shows for everybody not just big broadcast style vote off and elimination shows there was you know and again former news guy there was a whole part of my brain attuned to documentaries and docu reality and true crime even then beginning to Mm -hmm. bubble up as a thing Mm -hmm. i wanted i wanted to be able to develop and sell more broadly So after the two years of the CBS deal, you know, during which we made two series and three or four pilots, so so by any measure, like a lot of output for a a broadcast overall deal. That's right. Um, I just I went again and met with everybody, with production companies and Saudi billionaires and anybody who might back a shingle, because I was going to step out of this overall deal with, you know, some some ideas. And a little staff that I was immediately going to have to start paying. Right. You know, they, right. they ran on the back of the CBS shows, but we were going to leave those behind. I wanted someone to JV a production company and underwrite it. Um, and I got good offers and great offers and weird offers. Um, and at CAA's recommendation, though I was not a client there, uh, I sat down with Ryan Cavanaugh, who was then CEO of Relativity Media. They were at the time – Film finance guys, um, which was a really interesting business, right? They were moving money from Wall Street to Hollywood, um, underwriting the Sony and Universal slates. On every picture, they took a fee. They took a little bit of back end. So if the movie was real successful, they went on the ride. If it bombed, it was other people's money. And they got some credits. They were trying to figure out what the television version of that structure would be. And I think they were dangerously... Close to underwriting somebody's scripted slate, which would have been really different, right? Those, those dramas and comedies mm-hmm. pay off. Years later, you can spend hundreds of millions of dollars on your way to making nothing at all. Right. Um, I sat with them and said, you know, if you want a fee on every project, a taste of the back end, and to build a business quickly, like if that's what you guys like about your feature business, that's the non-scripted business. You know, that's where we develop on the cheap, lay the actual projects off at the network, make our fees and our margin, frankly, regardless of whether the show succeeds or fails. Right. Um, and at least at that moment in time, if we didn't own it outright, we'd at least get a taste.
0: And they had a distribution arm at Relativity for International at the time they, so the, the thought was they could possibly distribute shows that you sold I,
1: you know what the truth is they did not have a distribution arm when i did the deal they would later acquire one okay i was sort of the second thing they'd done they were got a film it. finance company that wanted to dabble in tv and um,
0: and, and again ryan yeah. kavanaugh like some people listening may not know like I, I got to have a few meetings with him when i worked with ben and i always like to say i don't your face just, you just yeah. start. yeah you just start it's a podcast nobody yeah. knows what my face is doing we, we gotta got talk about yeah. this because I, I, I loved going back into this and doing some research on my own. Sure. I've, I've obviously known the Ryan Kavanaugh stories, but I've never done a deep dive. Here's what was amazing to me when I went back and started like, going through this. Ryan Kavanaugh turned 44 –
1: yeah, I'm, this, a, I'm a this year, year older. Yeah.
0: This year. Right. I'm older than Ryan. So when this went down in 2008 and he is running a film was, finance company. He's working for a
1: little boy. Yeah. yeah.
0: And he's rolling with Leo. Sure. And he's rolling with Bradley Cooper yep. from like Hangover Days. He's got four assistants. He's flying helicopters all over L.A. Mm-hmm. and bugging some neighbors yeah. in the Hollywood Hills.
1: Right. To, he's he's to leasing. I don't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. I should pardon. I am I am legally prohibited from making the documentary. Yes. But-
0: I a hot tip. Somebody should. Oh, the book. There it's should the greatest be a book. story of all time. It should be a book. Yeah, it's incredible. Sure. So he is 33, right, right. give or take, yep. when you sit with him, yep. right? And he is leasing luxury cars to other executives all right. over town. I mean money is coming in and out, right, film finance world. And you're, you're meeting with all these people. You have to describe for me what that first meeting was with Ryan Kavanaugh. Because I'm going to get to where the story goes later. Yeah. But this first, <laughs> this first initial meeting, right. what was it about him where – and, and money aside, it, right. what was it about him where you're like, this is the partnership and were you taken with the guy immediately? Look, he, he
1: is in that pantheon of sellers, right? Yeah. You, you knew him through Ben. Yeah. Ben is another one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Ryan is a seller. Um, and And the vision was not just we're going to build a movie company and maybe a little TV company. The vision was world domination and he and he sold it incredibly convincingly, yeah he was going to take a really big swing. He was backed for the whole run by really serious smart people yeah. you know who heard that pitch and bought into the tune of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, so you know smarter people than me heard it and bought it yeah. um, he had a lot of cash on the books at that moment and a desire to really cause some trouble uh he also as i said in the beginning you know s- say what you will once he knew about unscripted and reality television he loved it as, as much as i did mm. you know this was it it was a different meeting mm. at big studios who saw what we do as sort of a slightly embarrassing bolt-on to their real TV business, dramas and comedies, right? Like this was going to be the play, and I liked that. You know, I, yeah. well, I, I was, have often I, look, I've often accused this town of thinking of us all like drug money. Like they, they like the dollars. They just don't want to think about where they come from.
0: Talk about reality TV. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, they're dismissive of what we do.
0: Well, I was going to say, like, I always feel like us in the reality TV circles, we're like. We're really Hollywood adjacent. Right. right? I think that's right. And when you walked into relativity exactly at that time in Ryan Kavanaugh world, you yourself walked right into the heart of Hollywood – Culture. I mean, the the people that you guys were working with, or that the company yeah. was working with in their films, right? The people they were in business with, the people in his orbit at that time. You were walking into a company that was right in the mix. Yeah. So, I, that's, so in the reality world, right. You could use that to your advantage. Sure. Because hey, we're the studio behind financing Hangover and these other right. big blockbusters. No, it sounded great. It sounded great. And I that mean, was
1: confusing, but great. Yeah. I,
0: right. Yeah. <laughs> but you had at least that back, Like, here's yeah. all the stars were in business with at Relativity. No, I thought that too. Right? I
1: mean, look, as he and I started to get serious about doing something, yeah. you thought, yeah, this, this will be a good platform, it'll sound sexy, it'll put us in conversations with some interesting talent around whom we can develop stuff, right. and mostly look, they promised to leave me entirely alone, mm. And and even when things at that company were less good they lived up to that promise they were beverly hills and we were deepest darkest hollywood they were private jets and whatever they were we were folding tables and chairs <laughs> you know but i i very quickly built a tv company of some scale oh, and operated it independently which is all i ever wanted to do okay. that wouldn't have been true other places, at, yeah. at bigger, better studios. Yep. They just...
0: or, or other traditional reality studios. Sure. They would have been all up in your business. By the way,
1: anyone who had a television executive on staff. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I liked the idea that there was nobody but me. Right. And I, and I ran with that. Um, and we, it's part of the reason we could scale that really quickly. Nobody ever told me I couldn't go close a deal.
0: Well, you go on a crazy-ass run from there. I mean you guys start selling shows in the world of crime, food, traditional formats – Doc series. You you sell Limitless, right. um, the TV adaptation to CBS. Right.
1: We're selling dramas. Well, look, this this was the opportunity. Partner notwithstanding, this was the opportunity I had been waiting for. Yeah. You know, at Endemol, I was sort of the doc guy. At CBS, I could pitch anything I wanted, but, but only to three networks. Right. This was the first time somebody said, you've got a reasonably large development slush fund. You know, you've got your – seven best friends working with you. And that was inclusive of the two assistants and the production guy, but like we were lean yeah. and just go make shows. Yeah.
0: You go on a freaking so tear, we Tom
1: broadcast and cable. And yeah, I mean, it was from a full standing stop. You were to about a hundred million in annual revenue in, in 18 months. It was a good ride. In 18 run. months, $100 yeah.
0: million in revenue. Yeah, it was a good okay. ride. Right, so I'm just, we have to go really fast on these. Yes. There's just a couple ones I wanted to, I wanted to pinpoint. Sure. Give me, give me like a few sentences on some of these, okay? <laughs> yeah. Like the first thing that comes into your mind when I say it. 2011, Gigolos premieres on Showtime. Gigolo, what? Amazing that Gigolos didn't receive any right. of the backlash, but Kid Nation did. Shocking that. Yeah.
1: Uh, look, Gigolos, a terrific piece of business and secretly a comedy. And once you get uh, that, you get Gigolos and why I can still be proud of it. Yeah. Like this, yeah. was a, this was a subculture comedy. Showtime knew it was funny. I knew it was funny. Maybe nobody else knew it was funny. Darn.
0: No. Awesome. Right. 2012. And this is, this is an obscure one, but I always thought this was the most genius idea. Please. The American Bible Challenge on GSN. Yes, I thought was one of the smartest from the producers of Jigolos. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was one of the smartest ideas ever. Uh, yeah, look,
1: that that show had been in development at GSN. Uh, Amy Tricasso Davis yeah. called me and asked if we would take a swing at this thing creatively because they couldn't figure out how to make it, you know, faithful to the source material. And entertaining and, like, helpfully, helpfully she called Jews. There's probably a better way to say (laughs) that. Because
0: you're going to do a New Testament. Well, uh, because you –
1: because you could take a half step back, look at it, and yeah. go, how can we make this fun? Yes. It still can't feel like taking your medicine, yeah. and, and even believers like to laugh. Yeah. And so you started with, like, I don't know, Foxworthy. Yeah. And it flows from there. Yeah. I think the previous incarnations of that development were really serious. Okay. And it had to be a show first.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It had to feel like something that could actually be a game that you would play at church right. on Sunday yep. in a fun way.
1: The bummer of that show is set ratings records on right? GSN. Right, I remember doing yeah. really well. Huge hit for them, as you might imagine. It was an island. You yeah. know, the, the viewers of American Bible Challenge did not stick around for the Jerry Springer-hosted game show that followed it.
0: But if so it broke they, records. Why did they care?
1: They were trying to build a schedule and an audience that faithfully showed up for one hour and then left.
0: Couldn't they have just started to build around that?
1: didn't have any interest in being a faith-based network. It was also, I think expensive by their
0: standards. Okay. That, okay. 2013. And this is a free, this is a show that people don't talk enough about because of all the episodes, but guys, grocery games. I mean, you're close to like a hundred plus episodes now, right? right?
1: Guys, grocery games is a sad story around here Okay, because we developed that show. We made the first four or five seasons of that show. We nurtured it into a hit. Yeah. Um, When you get to the next chapter of this story and the parent company plunges into bankruptcy, um, our network partners were more patient and more forgiving and more understanding Mm -hmm. than I had any right to expect them to be. Wow. Um, Doing business with a company in Chapter 11, which is what my little TV company was during the parent company's bankruptcy, was a bridge too far for the Scripps Networks, oh. who took that show and assigned it to somebody else. I
0: didn't even think about that. Yeah. I didn't even think about what—
1: 52 episodes a year walked out the door. Yes. It was a sad day. Spoiler
0: alert. Relativity is about to go bankrupt in, in a few minutes. Uh, right. Uh, 2013, <laughs> Catfish. Yes. Catfish ad- adapted from a Relativity feature documentary?
1: Yes. Yeah, so so Catfish—you know, the, the filmmakers of Catfish, right. Henry and Rel— um, had turned a camera on Rel's younger brother, Neve, made a documentary and taken it to Sundance. Relativity bought it there. Right. Uh, I went to an executive screening just because I was curious where they showed the whole company the stuff they had bought from this Sundance adventure.
0: It's freaking fantastic. Yeah,
1: I looked at it and said, no, no, that's, that's a series. And so we partnered with the filmmakers and producers because Relativity, I mean, look, they, they left us so alone and sometimes thought so little of the television effort that they occasionally forgot to acquire TV rights <laughs> as they bought a movie. So I got a sneak peek mm. at, at Catfish but did not have the rights to Catfish. Mm. We went out and acquired those, raced it to MTV, mm. pitched it three times before they bought it. Come on. The, so the good old days at MTV, remember, they ran a L.A.-based – development team, a New York based yep. development team, and then MTV news, all of whom were insanely internally, incredibly competitive. Yep. They operated like they were different companies. They bought their own shows. They'd meet at annual and biannual retreats. They, they present their respective slates and like somebody would win and somebody would, it was a reality show. Uh, I pitched that in LA and they sort of yawned. I pitched it in New York hard pass hold
0: on even with the success of the documentary commercially behind you like had the documentary come out yet when you were pitching Yeah, the
1: documentary had just you know i we we timed the pitches we had a we cut our own trailer and sizzle out of the dock i went and sat with the senior team in new york i did the same thing in la i got two speedy passes not for us too heady not entertaining looks like a sundance doc what do you mean you think that guy can host you know all of that and then and then to their credit uh nomi leidner marshall eisen the team at mtv news Hmm. went oh we that this is this is the show we've been waiting for like this is how mtv news does entertainment
0: you got it through the mtv news division yeah how did you even know to get to the MTV news people? That's not somebody that like agents are typically talking to.
1: No, I mean, look, all roads lead back to Forty Eight Hours, where I had been a producer uh. and know me, you know, then an executive Tom, at MTV. You... Later, advice was my AP. Can
0: you believe that? It's great. You, you ever think about that? Like it's if, the greatest. If you didn't have that inside news connection, MTV, Catfish the series never happened. Right. But I look. I don't think that's. I don't think that's so unusual in our business.
1: Yeah. A lot of what we do. And I think a lot of the stuff that gets off the ground and goes on to become pop culture phenomenons you know, are a show creator calling a network executive who trusts them mm. and saying, I just got a thing and I believe in it and let me take a shot and it, – fuck, it's me. Did you just st- let me.
0: Did you go straight to series with that or did they make you pilot it? No.
1: So they, they made us cast it because nobody believed we could get that people – there's more
0: scenarios out there. That
1: there are more scenarios out there or that people would confess them on television – um, it was an impossibly hard casting challenge. Rebecca Rosashan oversaw it for us, knocked it out of the park. Found one terrific story. We did one of one of what MTV, I guess, still does to this day, like a relatively big budget presentation yep. that they screen at an offsite. Mm-hmm. We ultimately, the story was so good, we supersized that presentation and turned it into the first episode mm-hmm. when they ordered the series. Mm-hmm. But it just look, it just worked. If if you could cast it, that show is you know um, it's impossibly hard to make. Yeah. But if you if you can find a good story and deploy Neve Schulman on it, you get back something really good. You know, you just get something really, really good with guaranteed payoff, not entirely dissimilar from Extreme Makeover Home Edition, right? I think right. you've trained an audience to know. That whatever twists and turns this takes, hang in till Act Four. Right. You know right. it's right. just gonna get good.
0: Man. All right. Last credit here during the relativity yeah. days, um, just because it, it was something I had been tracking. Sure. Around the time of its launch, and this is a show that like types of shows that would never sell anymore, and they never we may it may be years again until shows <laughs> like this ever sell again. Are we, are we back to Gigolos? No. Sex Box. Oh, Sex Box. 2015 Sex sure. Box. It, that was a format, correct? That, yeah. So was, Sex
1: Box. Look, like like you, I keep a close eye on the international marketplace. Not because we're running around optioning international formats, which are just harder to get away in the United States than ever before. There was a moment that wasn't true. It's certainly true in the era of streaming.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, but right. It's, but How it's, about it, that, yeah, mm, yeah, that,
1: that business evaporated. Were yeah. you at the last map? Dead. But it is a worthwhile endeavor, and I would encourage everybody, not that you're going to go steal an idea, but you you get inspired by stuff that's happening in secondary and tertiary territories, at least I do. Mm-hmm. So I pay pretty close attention to the international marketplace e- even when I'm not doing business there. Um, we read about the Sex box special on Channel 4, and I just started to laugh. <laughs> um, also, to their credit, look, it was – it was the thing I think u k producers do really well that sometimes yep. Americans forget they had hung a batshit crazy concept on a on a small piece of real science you know that that after you have sex with endorphins firing and pheromones at their highest level, you know you are most open to new ideas, including coaching and advice mm-hmm. and so if you were going to help couples through their relationship issues. First, they should have sex, and in that moment of afterglow, you should fix everything that's broken about Mm -hmm. them—a makeover show that happens during the very moments after intercourse,
0: Um, which will take place in a box, in a box in front of an an audience.
1: So, so though we are not in the business of optioning international formats, thought one like that's so unique and specific that of course we have to. But also, only armed with tape with a little bit of ratings history with the promise that it had been produced safely and sort of taken seriously. Would anybody listen to me here? We called the UK producers uh, and said, give us a US option. And they said, no, hmm. we're going to MIP. We're going to do a oh, big okay. distribution deal. Um, I go to MIP every year. I love the international markets. I chased them down in person in an aisle, you know, up in the Riviera conference center and said, look, it's – I love this, and though you are going to go give rights to a distributor, it, that's not how it's going to sell in the United States. Yeah, you're going to need a producer. Someone with a little bit of credibility is going to have to get incredibly passionate about this idea, and, and I, I, I have some, and I am, and just go sell all the rights ex-US yep. and give me a very short, very free option to get this away in my territory – you know, what do you got to lose? Right. And they said, okay. And so I came back and made like four phone calls, but always knew I mean knew from the moment we had the option. We TV? Well, Mark was the kind yeah. of, you know, marketing and promo guy, yep. PT Barnum, you know. Uh, Okay, it's a little nutty, but I can make an event out of this. That, like, that was my guy who was going to be crazy enough and brilliant enough and and see our vision and take a swing. And did. That's so awesome. All right, so... (laughs) Sex box.
0: July 2015, Hollywood Reporter. Relativity files for bankruptcy. That happened. They post... Uh, they print. I read I should... about
1: it in The Hollywood Reporter, by the way. Well, should... we, had, we had no warning on the TV No so... warning.
0: No, we were doing our TV thing.
1: We were running our $150 well, million dollar TV company. Things look good from where we were sitting.
0: Let me compliment you because you're not only a fantastic producer, but you're also a great writer of a memo to your staff. Oh. Because they print the memo in The Hollywood Reporter that you write to your yeah, staff. Yeah, that's,
1: f- that's a few days later. Yeah, so a few I, days later. Yeah. I, so the company went into Chapter 11, the parent company. Get
0: a little closer um, Michael. Yep, to sure Michael. Yeah, sorry about that.
1: Yeah. I I knew – so little about corporate bankruptcy because I am fundamentally a television producer yeah. that I I called my lawyer and said, like, so they're bankrupt. What does that mean for me yeah. and my TV company? The answer was, hey, kid, you're bankrupt too. <laughs> and I just remember thinking that's not fair. Um, and then you learn nothing about bankruptcy is fair to, to anyone in every direction. Um, I – for for all sorts of reasons, but but uh, of of my own initiative, you know, we began to contact the lenders who were driving that bankruptcy and the restructuring officers who had been put in charge of Relativity, mm. saying, "Look, while there while there may be issues with this company, and by the way, with with the entire model built on the financing of forty million dollar movies, you know, a business so bad that every other studio just got out of it entirely." Mm-hmm. Um, that may or may not be a thing. We don't know. We're just the reality TV guys. All we know is we've got a great business here. Our numbers are great. It makes a lot of money and it's growing. And, hey, one more thing. You know, the instant we lay off an employee, miss a delivery deadline, take a cash flow payment but don't deliver an episode, like it's over. Yeah. Whatever value we create for this company here will evaporate overnight because the only reason networks are going to hang in with us is that they trust the little TV team.
0: That you're not going anywhere. That yeah. we're not going anywhere.
1: And everybody said, huh. And a bunch of quick meetings were had, and you extracted from those investors a promise that though they may radically resize the rest of this company, they saw value in television. And we're going to help you operate through this thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, that's when I went out to the staff and said, look, I think I can confidently tell you – there's going to be a lot of chaos around here, and I don't know how it's going to all end up. But we all agree there's something special at Relativity Television, and and the people that are making the decisions have promised me they'll preserve it.
0: Well, well, six months later. I mean, it only took six months. Uh, right. By the way, at the time uh, when it's reported that they're going bankrupt, uh, it says that the company has between a hundred million to five hundred million in assets, but at the time had between five hundred million to a billion. Liabilities. The
1: parent company. The Relativity parent company. Media. Not, not yeah, television. No, I'm, I'm sure Yeah, the true.
0: parent company, right? Six months later, January 26, 2016, The Hollywood Reporter again, critical content launches. Right. Right? So it only took six months after Relativity announcing bankruptcy mm-hmm. that you were able to spin out. Right. Right? And how did that work? It was the same lenders and, yep. and, right? and the finance people behind that said, let's break you off of this and let you go do your thing. Is that, is yeah, that almost, how it
1: went? Almost better, they said, let's go together. Right. So the, right. the lenders behind Relativity Media, the, the guys who stood to. Black, Blackstone,
0: was that who was overseeing? Anchorage. It? Anchorage. Capital,
1: Anchorage. Um, and a consortium of other lenders. Right. But Anchorage in the, in the lead position, uh, you know, began during that bankruptcy process to sort of get their hands around those economics, you know, which are grim, and to think about what they were going to own when this bankruptcy was over. Uh, and I think after a, after a long, hard look, though, I don't want to speak for them said, look, the, the appealing piece here is television, right? Um, they partnered with me to waive our respective claims against relativity Mm -hmm. and take everything associated with relativity TV. So the shows and the contracts to continue making the shows, every piece of development, the people, which was incredibly important to me. The pens, the pencils, we took it all and we yanked it out. Wow! Left relativity to figure out its its next chapter and and what started an edu- sleeping through the night. What an
0: education for you though, just on the finance side and the business side of all yeah. this, right? I mean, you had to learn that quick.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it was a, it was a crash course in corporate bankruptcy. It was a and we appeared in bankruptcy court in New York. I mean, it yeah, was wow. it was an interesting experience. It was educational. I would not recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, but but it it. It certainly prepared me for this chapter, you know, in which Anchorage Capital is my investor. You right. know, they're the financial sponsors of this company. Right. Thanks to that transaction. Yeah. We qu- certainly got to know each other quickly.
0: Yeah. So it's going to be four years in January from when you is announced. From when you announced. It, this article is huh. January 2016. How time flies. So four years is coming January. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, two years after you launch, Relativity files for bankruptcy a second time. Um, right. and, uh, that's kind of the end of the story with Ryan Cavanaugh on relativity. Um, so you got out, uh, and, and smart, uh, smartly the financiers got behind you. And now four years later, you're the CEO. You recently acquired T group with Jenny yes. Daly, who is, you guys, I mean, talk about being cut from the same cloth. I mean, you two are a powerhouse team. Like I talk now about, <laughs> I can't think of a more dominant we're, tag we're, team we're, in a we're room. We're a lot, we're a
1: lot together. I, I um, can't
0: imagine a more dominant pitch team in the room.
1: Look, I – so so year one of Critical was was about making it stand on its own two feet. Right. And I, you know, s- say what we will about relativity in the Chapter 11 process, it was only when you pulled the company out. During the bankruptcy, I would have told you we got absolutely nothing from the parent company, that they were just a drag on us. Mm. Um, you know, when, when you had to operate this thing, you said, well, look, not only was there some IP flowing from those guys and that was helpful – But like IP and IT and HR, all the acronyms, all the infrastructure, you know, the the accounting department, (laughs) right? Like you had to go out and just build those payroll, right? And you were doing it, you you know, you were changing the engine in flight. We were making these shows, you know, without computers. Like it was It was a really complicated first year, Mm. and again, super educational because you built you built a television company. Of some scale, we're still super small, but mm. but you know, you had to service a slate of twenty of something series a year yeah. and you had to do it overnight. Um so hired a CFO and a new head of bread and we built an accounting department and a business affairs and legal and we did all of those things. That took longer than I thought it would and was harder than I would have ever guessed.
0: Harder than any show you've produced? No.
1: But but look, just not not a thing I'd done before. Yeah,
0: and I think a lot of us
1: went into TV so we could do less math, like it was <laughs> the year of a ton of math. Um, so we did that, uh, and then spent the next year selling like crazy.
2: Yeah,
1: um, and really got a little bit of wind in our sails, and then said, okay, how how do we how do we really scale? Um, we made a small investment in a company in the UK, Renown Films. Um, who are young and diverse and we bought them out of the Channel 4 growth fund and mm. and really believe they're going to be something big and special. Mm. We got a series of Bravo now, a series of BET. Oh wow. They're young and British and adorable. <laughs> and I think we thought if we got them over here and kicked open some doors, our American buyers would just love these guys mm. and in fact did. Mm. And and our American buyers would totally understand cool British POV boring middle-aged <laughs> American execution. You know, that this was a good team. You were buying the show from Critical with whom you were already in business and who knew how to deliver to your standards and we could sort of de-risk working with Cool Brits.
0: Sure, and here's some new voices though. Yeah,
1: with new Rolodexes and new ideas about talent and they listen to grime music and they're cool. Um, So that's totally work. We did that in year two. Um, And then we started looking at other sort of transformative M&A and it, it just quickly became clear to me I was running the development team. I was overseeing day-to-day cable and broadcast production. And now I was supposed to go out and scale a business. Yeah. And I just I wasn't doing all of those things well. Mm. Um and so look, part of part of what attracted us to T Group was it's a great company. Part of it was we wanted Jenny. Yeah. Like I wanted a partner in crime here who could really roll up her or his sleeves. And, and make a show, staff a show, pitch a show, sell a show. There aren't many people like that out there. And frankly, if you're capable of doing all those things, you're probably running your own company. Right. You know, that's, that's what you did. And so we, you know, we, we went through a search. How and-
0: well did you guys know each other?
1: I mean, look, we, we knew each other like everybody in this business does okay, so you from, guys didn't from have around.
0: A, you didn't have a friendship. No, I think there was a ton
1: of mutual respect. Okay, um, We certainly n- knew each other. Yeah. Uh, but I, I having, having spent almost a year searching for the right person to come in as president of the company, um, called Jenny and said like, so it should be you and we'll buy your company to make that happen. And I think there's a ton of industrial – like, look, this is a moment where I, I think scale matters yeah. and where it allows you to drive margin, where it gives you a little bit of leverage in the marketplace, where we'll, sellers will never have much. Yeah. But that folding those T-group shows onto the critical infrastructure could be mutually beneficial. Mm. And, and look, you, I sell for a living but have never had to sell like I did with Jenny, you know, which was my most successful pitch. <laughs> And and we you know over over almost a year of sort of courting and dating we got there wow yeah great a year
0: a year year specifically courting Jenny
1: a year deciding that the deal made sense for both companies making the deal closing the deals and then and then sort of effectualizing the integration which is interesting right because I guess most companies. Big companies buy little nonfiction production companies, leave them siloed and operating independently, and then wonder why they don't grow. Mm. And I can tell you all the reasons they don't grow. I'm surprised anyone's surprised by that. Mm. Um, with T Group, really, the you know the the logic underlying the deal was we're gonna we're gonna keep the people, we're gonna make the shows. But as an entity, we're we're going to take all this and we're going to bring it into critical. Right, that's incredibly hard, and I now get why nobody else wants to do it. You know, (laughs) it it you have to work through. I mean, everything from software systems and payroll to corporate culture and just a different way of doing things. Plus, my little company was going to get a lot bigger fast because we weren't going to leave these people sitting in an office in Culver City. We were going to pick them up and bring them here. Right. Um,
0: Plus, you have people that go to work at Culver City every day now have to come to Burbank.
1: Yes. Don't mention that to Jenny. She's still bitter. Uh, the commute was really – like you have no, no idea how no, much of no. the deal was driven by
0: the commute. I had, I had, I had lunch with her like a yeah. couple weeks ago, still, and I was like blown yeah, no, away. She's still upset. I was blown away by it. Yeah. Right. I'm, the, going, through, I'm going through this right now. Just so like funny. At my level, just talking to somebody right. who lives on one side of town coming to that's where we riot. are. That's a riot.
1: Yeah. Um, so no, but kudos and you to had, you. Had, that is really you. the
0: best test of your salesmanship, getting her to do that drive.
1: And, no, and look. You had to look across – Two teams of incredibly talented people and say, how am I going to mesh these together? They're going to be ego issues. Who's going to report to who? What's actually the most efficient way to do this? What do we really need? Yeah. You know, and how would you purpose build this thing for speed and growth? That's, that's been incredibly exciting, really difficult. And sort of only as we get to the end of 2019 does it feel like one big company firing on all cylinders and now time to go buy something else.
0: Um, All right, last few questions. Yeah, please. These these are like fast hot seat questions, right? What was your favorite single show? Not like actual show. Like I'm going to tell you to pick one of your babies. But you loved pitching the most. Like the in-room experience of you pitching. You as a pitcher, which one did you enjoy actually taking out and going from room to room to room most? We we made a show for Logo. Get a little closer. Yeah.
1: We made a show for Logo that literally nobody but me remembers. (laughs) It was called Felt. (laughs) And we, we went out and we said this and we, um, I mostly love it because it had the greatest sizzle. It just, it had a sizzle that so sold the concept, but we went in and said, look, here's what it is. We're going to go to crisis sexual therapy for couples, right? Real couples who are having a dramatic problem in the bedroom. They're going to get assigned homework. We're going to follow them home as they try to do whatever the therapist told them. And then back to the therapist's office to see whether it worked. Um, in order to, to make that real and authentic, we're going to have to keep these couples anonymous. Mm. So we are going to record audio only and then illustrate this sex therapy and this sex with puppets. <laughs> Take a look at this tape. And we would roll the tape and people it – it sounded so absurd. And then you look at it and, again, it's one of those, one of those batshit ideas. But like – You can't look away. And the logic holds – yeah, Like like that, hey, we, we don't – we're not just doing this to be crazy. We have to do this because how else would we protect their identity and get to this underlying
0: truth? Like almost feels real. Do you still own the rights to that? I bet we do. It's really you, good. But couldn't you do that as a podcast now? A podcast with puppets? It's audio only. You don't need the puppets.
1: Oh, yeah, what stop something funny without the puppets? Well, yeah,
0: of course, but that's that's still real. sure. That's still, you could, that's you could go make
1: you could go make the serious show. That's still great ugh. real,
0: that's still great, great
1: storytelling. I suppose. I mean, it was just we did this. You know, you showed them a piece of tape where the 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 audio was incredibly dramatic. Yeah. The visual was only comedic. Oh, and great. you just played it straight. That's and you and you and I remember sitting at Logo saying, "You just we're never gonna crack a smile." We just this is this is about saving lives and fixing relationships. Right. It just happens to have puppets because how else could we do
0: it? And everybody <laughs>
1: said, "All right, we're in." Oh, I was so happy. You
0: should go, you should go take it out the quibb. I was so happy. Um, do you still? I had, I had Brent Pivetic on the show recently. Sure. And do you know Brent? Of, of course. I had Brent on the show, and he was talking about how back in the day, you know, his heyday of like three ball era. He, he knew. He knew when a show was going to sell. Like As right. he was developing a project, he knew. Yeah. And then he said in later years before he kind of like – jettisoned from the business he really kind of lost touch of like he didn't really know anymore like he couldn't really tell you anymore i don't know what's yeah. gonna sell do you do you still like feel like you know what's gonna sell or is it more like a crap shoot okay these first
1: days? have you ever watched a brand pinvidic sizzle reel
0: oh my god i love that you're talking about know, this he
1: does a thing that i've yeah. never had the guts to do he puts himself in his reels.
0: i know we talked about this he broke it down for me about right. why he did it and yeah. it was really just because he wanted to be pitched properly when it made it up to the c-suite so so I think that
1: dovetails an important way with the question you're asking. You know, it it seems to me that even three or four years ago, I, you sat in the room with a decision maker. Like they may not be able to greenlight a series, but that executives at the sort of SVP EVP level, you know, not to mention network presidents. Had a pilot's worth of discretionary budget around for a good idea when they heard it. Mm. So if you pitch something and and it was right for them, yeah, they looked at you in the room and said we should do this. And you you could put that in the bank. You know, the process now, and I'm not sure it's anybody's fault, but like – You can sit with that network president who is ostensibly making the programming decisions for their channel. They still really can't greenlight even a pilot without talking to marketing, without talking to scheduling, without going back to business affairs and legal. There are sometimes long processes by which that thing is focused and tested and analyzed. And so, yeah, nobody – nobody says yes in the room anymore, and it's – it is thus incredibly hard to read a room. Yeah. You know, even the sort of positive feedback that once indicated a pickup, it's like, who knows what's going to happen when you're gone? So I get why Brandt shoots himself.
0: Yeah. And that, <laughs> and that, that room, that room that you're talking about where you, can, you don't know how to read a room, that room that you're pitching in is not the room deciding anymore. That's right. Look, that's why,
1: that's why we make sizzles for absolutely everything, mm-hmm. whether I show them or not when we pitch. Mm-hmm. And often feel – like I can tell a better story than that tape might tell, yeah. especially for format. You know, le- less true if I've got to demonstrate that a cast is is of quality to be on television. But if you're going to go through rounds of gameplay, if you want to explain why this this big quirky format is going to be fun when stretched out over an hour, not to mention a season, like I like telling that story. And then I typically hand that executive a reel and say, you know, and, and then when you have to tell this story, just play this. It's not me narrating it, but it's, you know, it's going to be found footage or animation or whatever it is. Right. And so just inevitably less good than an episode, which bums me out.
0: How quickly do you get to the tape? I, I, my rule, my philosophy is if I've got tape that I'm showing in that pitch meeting, I like to get to it as quickly as possible in the room. Like I'll do a little a quick setup and then I like to get right to the tape and then, I, then I'm on and, yeah. and then I go and I, I break it down from there do you kind of have a philosophy of when the tape should be played and when not? Do you no, just, do I mean, you I, I, it? I guess
1: it, it's a, it's an interesting question. I haven't thought about it that way because I, I feel
0: like if, if they walk into a room, right. And they see there's something holding on the TV screen, right. Like there is a sizzle in queue. <laughs> I feel like all these ADD That's, network executives, I, yeah. I feel like all they're thinking is, is he just going to play the damn tape? Cause right. it's sitting right here on a freeze frame.
1: Well, certainly you can't put paper in front of them. They no, will, I don't they do will that. read ahead. And I don't do that you anymore. About, right. You, ne- you, ne- you, you never
0: give handouts in a pitch. No, no.
1: On your way out the door. Yeah. Uh,
0: look i i tend
1: I, I tend to to use the first couple minutes of a of a pitch to sort of locate the idea in time and space yeah. i i think it's important to tell people how you thought of this, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or why it 's right for right now, or hey, have you seen this thing on the internet yep. you know but to, to connect it to the world in which we actually live, and then at some point you say right, and that 's why we thought of this, right. and you hit play, you play your piece of tape, then you get granular, but not too granular, then you leave
0: I always feel awkward when the pitch is playing, when the sizzle 's playing. Because I want to just stare at them the whole time right. to read faces. Yep. But I understand how awkward that must be. So I'm pretty much pretending to watch my sizzle for the hundredth time. That's But right. I'm really Laugh watching. Laugh
1: as if you didn't cut it. Yeah. And yeah, right. Wait, and I, wherever
0: did that come from? And I'm trying to really just watch their faces, but I, I don't want them to catch me watching their faces. Right.
1: I'll, I'll sometimes just leave music up in a sizzle going, and this is where I'll start talking. Like I'll just jump in and go, you know, and, and narrate or mm. applaud my own sizzle, mm. you know, or explain something that we probably left out or make fun of the cut. Right, right, yeah, it's right.
0: hard. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, man.
1: You're so welcome. This was super fun. You're
0: a really busy guy. You made you gave me plenty of time. Thank you for – Hire Jenny.
1: I'm less busy now. <laughs> That's right. it's true. Oh, All yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thanks, dude. Appreciate of course. It. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for doing it.